0: In Bedford and from 1622 to 1688. And he was an uneducated tinker, which basically meant he repaired pots and pans. John Owen once said he would lay aside all of his learning if he could preach like the tinker. It's an amazing preacher. And he was in prison for twelve years. And we'll get into that in a second. But George Whitfield says about his writing, even in The Pilgrim's Progress, that it smells of the prison. And the reason that Bunyan went to prison was because his church was meeting in an Anglican church, kind of like a church plant would do, but he was not part of the Anglican church. The government wanted all the churches to be in conformity. They wanted wanted them to be Anglican, to use the Book of Common Prayer. And Bunyan was now off preaching away at a farm, not submitting to the government when it had made a law that it was an offense to attend a religious gathering other than at a parish church with more than five people outside their family this off- offense was punishable for three months imprisonment followed by banishment or execution if the person then failed to prompt failed to promise not to reoffend. so behind the law was this concern that the um, the government wanted to have control over the people they were afraid that the people if they were Gathered in groups would uh, mount some anarchy against the government, so it was a way to, to keep power for the government. And Bunyan, at his trial, he was indicted as having devilishly and perniciously abstaining, abstained from coming to church to hear divine service and having held several unlawful meetings and conventicles to the great disturbance and distraction of the great subjects of this kingdom. And so Bunyan was sentenced to three months in prison, and at the end of three months he had to agree to attend the parish church and desist, desist from preaching. Now here's where it got difficult. Bunyan refused to stop preaching. And so this period of imprisonment went on for 12 years, and it brought incredible hardship to his prison. But he said, if you let me out of prison today, I will preach the gospel tomorrow. His wife was pregnant when he went to prison. She delivered a stillborn child. They had four children at home. They were very poor, and one of the daughters, whom he loved greatly, was blind. All he had to do was quit preaching, and he'd be released from prison. And Bunyan said, I I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet thought, 'I, I must do it, I must do it. And he made shoelaces in prison to help his family. And his family had to rely on the charity of the Bedford congregation to live. His conclusion was, the dearest idol I have known, Whatever that idol may be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. We're still reading the book that he wrote in prison, Pilgrim's Progress. And there are these rare times where God puts people in a furnace of affliction, where he tries them so greatly. It sounds a lot like Genesis and Hebrews, doesn't it? Which says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the, laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld And then the writer of Hebrews, giving inspired commentary to this very narrative, says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a very difficult passage for us to hear, to take in, and pray that, Lord, you would move us, Lord, to help us to see your great love for us in this story. We pray you'd speak now to us. We ask in Christ now. Amen. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham. Abraham is considered the father of our faith. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, and that was the story of his justifying faith. But here the writer of Hebrews again says he reckoned, he considered, it's an accounting term, he considered, he reckoned that God was able to raise his son from the dead. And so Abraham's faith is tested and tried and true. I want us to look at the when, the what, the why, and the how of Abraham's faith this morning. First of all, when he was tested. It says, by faith, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, when he was tested. A.W. Tozier has one of these great messages. It's like The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. You should read it like once a year. This is called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. It's chapter two in, in the book, Pursuit of God. I know it's one of my wife's favorite chapters. And, and his case study in this chapter is Abraham. He refers to Abraham's love for his son and that Isaac is, is, has become an idol and that he was a love slave of his son. He says that Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough indeed to have been his grandfather and his child became at once the delight and the idol of his heart. From the moment when he first stooped, to take the tiny form awkwardly in his arms. He was an eager love slave of his son. God went on his way to comment on the strength of his, this affection, and it is not hard to understand. The baby represented everything sacred to his father's heart, the promises of God, the covenants, the hope of the years and the long messianic dream. As he watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the, man, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of his son till at last the relationship bordered upon the perilous. It was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. And so he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Been waiting 25 years for this promise. And now he tells him to offer him up. He goes on to say that God let the suffering of the old man. He let him go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat and then forbade him to lay a hand upon the boy. To the wondering, he now says in effect, it's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may leave the boy sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that you fear me, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And now he's a man wholly surrendered, a man utterly obedient, a man who possessed nothing. He had concentrated his all in the person of his dear son, and God had taken it from him. God could have begun out of the margin of Abraham's life and worked inward to the center, but he chose rather to cut quickly to the heart and have it over one sharp act of separation. In dealing thus, he practiced an economy of means and time. It hurt cruelly, but it was effective. Tozier goes on to say, I've said that Abraham possessed nothing. Yet was this, wasn't this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camel, herds, and goods of every sort. He also had his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. There is the spiritual secret. After that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never again had the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart. Things had been cast out forever. They have become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. The world said Abraham is rich, but the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it to them, but he knew that he owned nothing and that his, rear treasure, his real treasures were inward and eternal. The Bible says in 1 Peter that we are being, by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests us in the crucible of suffering and hardship and afflictions. And what is the one thing that for us is the hardest thing to let go of. That seems to be where God points his finger and what he goes after. If you can't let it go, then it's your God. It's your functional savior. William Lane in his commentary on Hebrews says about Abraham's faith in offering up Isaac, he says, when Abraham, when Abraham obeyed God's mandate to leave Ur, he simply had to give up his past. But when he was summoned to Mount Moriah to deliver up his son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. This is everything. And so what did he do? He offered up his only son, whom he loved. He offered him up as a burnt offering. A burnt offering was a process that involved first cutting the throat, then dismemberment, and then a sacrifice by fire in which the body parts were completely consumed on the altar. That's what what he's being called to do, in case you just, you know, glossed over the, 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 what a burnt offering is. This kind of offering was a symbol of complete consecration, utter devotion. And so God gave Abraham three commands, take, go, offer him. And Genesis 22 follows on the heels of Genesis 21 where the promised child has come and Ishmael by command has been driven away. And you'd think Abraham would have thought, I have just come from 25 years of barrenness and now you're going to reward me with bereavement? But Abraham doesn't stagger in his faith. He's willing to give his firstborn over to God. The knife was taken out of the sheath. Abraham was going all the way. The knife was ready to come down on his son. In so doing, we see what pains God in giving over his only son for our sin. Jesus said in Zechariah, he refers to this at the night he was betrayed. He refers back to Zechariah 13, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus spoke those words before his arrest and crucifixion. But it was God who was awaking the sword against the good shepherd. Why? Why would Abraham do this? He answers obedience. God told him to do it. John Brown, an old Puritan writer, put it like this. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that God has made these promises. I'm quite sure that he'll perform them. How is he to perform them? I cannot tell. That is his province, not mine. It is his to promise and mine to believe, his to command and mine to obey. And that sounds like John Newton's hymn. Be gone unbelief. Which says, Be gone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By faith let me wrestle with God in the storm, and help me my Savior the faith to adorn. And help me my Savior the faith to adorn. Though dark be my way, since He is my guide, tis mine to obey and His to provide. Though cisterns be broken and all creatures will fail, the word He has spoken will surely prevail. The word He has spoken will surely prevail. So how did Abraham do this? How did he reconcile the promise with the command? The promise that through your, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and now the command to offer him up. How do you reconcile the promise with the command? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that this child was as good as dead, because he's going to sacrifice him at the command of God. Yet, God spared him. But it is impossible for us not to see, as we look through this now, in the full lens of Scripture, we see the type of the Messiah. Just as Isaac, the Bible says he was as good as dead in Romans 4. The idea is that God called him and brought him forth. The Messiah's conception was also miraculous, born of a virgin. And just as Jesus' resurrection was an actual death, here we see the picture of Isaac as one who is the Christ. We see Isaac carrying the wood and being submissive to his father. Who would carry the wood and be submissive to his father? And, and we see one who is... Offered up like, and, and Jesus is the lamb caught in the thicket. And Abraham did this with the intention that knowing that God would raise him from the dead. Well, God did raise his son from the dead. How could God the Father do this? So when you see Isaac, you see a picture of Jesus. But when you see Abraham, you should be able to look at Abraham and say, I, if it wasn't for this story in Genesis, I wouldn't know the depth of God's love. A fatherly love for his son to spare him not but to offer him up to freely give him over for us all the power of god to do so knowing that he would raise him up what does this point us to well as i said this points us to jesus we see in this story the love of god the father to spare not his only son his only son was not spared. Romans 8.32 is a powerful verse because when you think of God spared not his son, what do we do as good parents? We spare our children from pain. And we say, oh, I've got to spare you of that. I spare you of that. And Romans 8.32 says, He spared him not, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not now also freely give us all things? And Isaac is a foreshadowing to Christ, pointing us to God's great love for us. Karl Barth was once asked what he thought was the most important word in the Bible. And his answer was the word "Who pair" is this Greek word that means on behalf of or in place of. And it's usually just translated as for. But there's so many passages in the New Testament where this Greek word pair is used, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life pair for the sheep on behalf of, in our place. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. He died for sins once for all the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. John Murray put it like this. He says, sparing refers to suffering inflicted. Parents spare their children when they do, when they do not inflict the full measure of chastisement due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pr- pronounce a sentence consummate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, this is not what the God the Father did. He did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full judgment executed on his well-beloved and only begotten Son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. There was no mitigation. Judgment was dispensed upon the Son in its unrelieved intensity. For God to spare his people, he had to spare not his Son. This seems ludicrous to us until we see how sinful we really are and how holy God really is. If God, and since God is absolutely perfect and just, he can't lighten his sentence on sinners who've willfully turned their backs on him, disregarded his ways and his yoke, and have done what's right in their own eyes. We've lived for our own glory, our own selfishness. And God has said the soul that sins shall die. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So God has a dilemma The dilemma is how can he be just and loving at the same time? And most of us have this idea that God is somehow a pushover, a softie, or winks on our sin. And that's not the case of the Bible. For God to be just and the justifier, he had to spare not his own son. And so the imagery here is in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And when we look at this story, It makes us ask questions, doesn't it? I mean, it makes you ask the question, for me, you ask the question, how can God do that? What kind of God is this? We want an answer as the command seems so harsh. And I was listening to, uh, Porter was telling me this week that that he had gone to hear somebody preach this sermon at a liberal church he didn't really realize it was so liberal till he heard the message and the pastor opened up this text in Genesis 2 he read the text and he said that the pagan uh, culture in which Abraham was a part of that it was very common to offer up child sacrifice and Abraham thought that he'd heard God say to offer him up but he was just confused since he was a product of his culture, and God had to correct him and stop him from offering up his son. And so, but Abraham was confused. Now, the problem, if you interpret the text like that, is there's no gospel. There is no gospel. The more we ponder this text, we see that Isaac is the picture of Jesus carrying the wood, and Jesus is the one Our Isaac is submitting to his father as Jesus submits to his father, and Abraham is the picture of a father in agony on this three-day journey, this 50-mile hike, knowing that he's going to offer his his son. But we will come back. We're going to go, and we'll come back to you. He, He believes that God will raise him from the dead. And so as we move from this, this is an interesting how we can raise questions at God and say, how can God do that? What kind of God is this? Yet as we move towards worship, we move from whining at God to worshiping God, from murmuring to marveling, and we say, God, how can you do that? What kind of God is this that would offer up his son to show his great love and to pour out his wrath? God is showing love and hatred at the same time on his son. Hatred towards our sin and punishing it and love towards sinners and love towards his own son and loving what he's done. When people are blown away by God, they ask questions but they don't want the questions to be answered. What kind of questions are you asking God this morning? You see, when people, and, I, and I'll get to a couple examples of this in hymns, but when people, when we're really captivated by the love of God, we ask questions in a way to marvel, to be caught up in and drawn to the love of God, but we really don't want an answer. We say things like, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explain his strange design? Question mark. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Question mark. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Question mark. Not wanting an answer. Was it for sins that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Question mark. Why should I gain from his reward? Question mark. I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Who can grasp his infinite wisdom? Question mark. Who can fathom the depth of your love? You're beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above, and I stand in all of you. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown, question mark. You plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, you overcome, you gave your life to give me mine, you say that I am free, how can it be, how can it be, question mark. You see, Genesis 22 understood we move from questioning of how could God do this, how could God do this and offer, make him offer up his son because God knew that he was communicating a gospel that we would see his incredible love for us and what pain he went through to offer up his one and only son and freely offer him up to bring sinners into himself knowing that he dearly loves his children and will rescue them. And so we ask questions we say, How can it be? How can it be? And we be move from murmuring to worship. I hope that's your heart's desire this morning. Worship him. Let's pray. How we praise you. Lord Jesus, you were the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world and we say worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and power and glory and wisdom forever and ever we thank you Lord. we we don't even know the depths of our sin or the depths of your sacrifice help us to see the depths of your great great love We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in singing the Lamb of God. Would you stand with me?